This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Uh, we're going to talk about cold today. What happens when you're in the backcountry and you are in the cold? That's uh, this is the reverse effect of what happened when you're in an area where it's hot. Uh, when you're in cold, heat is leaving your body so quickly that a lot of diseases can happen. And it's very easy to understand how this whole process works. You just have to always remember a couple of important facts. There's no such thing as cold, even though we just mentioned it. There's only, in the world of uh, thermodynamics and physics, there's only such a thing as heat. And heat always goes, uh, the energy that, it, that we call heat, always goes from something that is hot to an area that is cold. Our body temperature is about 100 degrees, give or take. It's usually you know, 98 or thereabouts, usually a little colder. And the environment that we're in is almost always colder than we are. We can get in environments where it's 98 or 100 degrees, but it's unpleasant. We typically go to an area where it's cooler. Usually we like the temperature to be 20, 30 degrees cooler than we are. And that allows for a very nice flow of heat from our body to the air uh, that is around us. And if we control that and we get a modest flow of heat from our body, we don't get into trouble. Where we get into trouble is if we lose too much heat from our body and we lose it too quickly. And then we get a disease called hypothermia. Hypothermia is, uh, can be found anywhere, really. It can be found in the summer months uh, in immersion accidents, uh, which is really common. Co- uh, water is such a very good conductor of heat that when a human body, which is at nearly 100 degrees, falls into water that's 50 degrees, heat leaves our body so quickly. So in the summer, it, it can happen. It happens a lot in people who are homeless and have no protection to, and heat leaves their body. People who are intoxicated because the vessels dilate and heat leaves their body. Patients with comorbidities of any kind uh, that can promote heat leaving the body. Uh, the, it, you don't do well as the body gets uh, cold, uh, and that is why we uh, bundle ourselves up uh, very quickly as the temperature begins to drop. The lowest known uh, accidental hypothermia temperature where someone has been resuscitated is 57 degrees Fahrenheit. That's the core body temperature. That's about 13.7 degrees uh, uh, centigrade. That is really cold. There are basically three ways that the body loses heat, and it has to lose heat because we generate more heat than we need. In fact, most of our heat just goes to thermal regulation and just leaves our body. If you don't let the heat leave the body, uh, you get hyperthermia, your temperature rises. So you really need to have heat leave the body, but you need to do it in a very you know, systematic, systematic and very uh, uh, prescribed way. And we do that. We, we take uh, clothes on and off, jackets on and off, according to the level of temperature. As the temperature drops, you put on a light coat. If it goes, goes down lower, you put on a, a heavier coat. But there are, uh, there are three methods by which heat is lost from the body. The first is uh, radiation. Radiation is the way we lose most of our heat, and about over half of our heat is lost that way. We control radiated heat losses by bundling up. Um, now this is electromagnetic radiation. Uh, conduction is the most efficient way of losing heat. You know, it's, uh, jumping in a cold water uh, in a river is 
is very excruciating. In fact, if you jump in water about uh, 65 or 68 degrees, it's extremely uncomfortable. What is interesting, though, if you go outside in the air temperature that's 65 or 68 degrees, you'll say, boy, this is a beautiful day. And the reason is air is a very poor conductor of heat, where water is a great conductor of heat. Since air is such a bad conductor, you stand at 68-degree temperature, the, the, the heat leaves our body at such a slow rate, it feels comfortable. But you jump in water, and it just immediately draws heat from our body because it's such a good conductor of heat. Convection is, is a good way of losing heat. That's just air motion. When you get hot, you fan yourself. When you get cold, you try to get out of the wind. How many days on a spring day when you've been outside... And uh, it, you say, oh, it's gorgeous out. Maybe it's 50, 55 degrees. Then the wind begins to blow, and you go, oh, that's cold. And you wish the wind would stop. Wind will blow heat away from our body. In fact, the effect of that is called the wind chill factor, which they put on the news every night when, it, when they say it's 50 degrees out, but it feels like it's 40. And that's because the wind will blow more heat away from our body. Evaporation uses all three of those. It's not an exact way of losing heat, but it uses convection, conduction, and radiation it is, it's crucial to keep in mind that the different ways that heat is lost from the body in order to prevent cold-related injuries, especially when you're out in the field. And if you understand convection, conduction, and radiation, you can very nicely let heat leave your body in an appropriate way. If it's too hot, you let more heat out. If it's too cold, you let less heat out. And so you use and you look for ways to uh, uh, that are dry, which is conduction, insulated, which is radiation, and out of the wind, which is convection. And if you don't have any contact with ice, snow, or water, that is conduction. This will limit the effects of evaporation, radiation, uh, conduction, and convection. When you're planning anything outdoors from a day trip to like an overnight trip in the winter, the potential for hypothermia and cold-related injuries like frostbite and frost snip should always be of a concern. Even when air temperatures are hot, like frigid river water splashing on a body combined with the wind blowing upstream can drop a body core temperature quite rapidly. I think the coldest time I've ever felt in my life was on the Grand Canyon years ago when I was a guy down there. The temperature was well over 100 degrees, but we were shivering on the boat because the, the water temperature is in the mid-40s, and the wind, even though it was a warm wind, was blowing upstream, and people were cold. Even in when it was over 100 degrees out, people were, were uh, cold. The single most important aspect of hypothermia and other uh, cold-related injuries is prevention. And you have to have adequate prevention by being aware of the changing weather patterns, bringing the proper gear, having backup plans in case of an emergency, and being aware that the, you know, cold-related injuries can happen in uh, temperatures where it's warm will help you to prevent these things. Remember that cold-related injuries are much easier to prevent in the wilderness than they are to treat. We had a lady that got out of a rapid when the, the, the air shortage is telling you, the, the wind was, we were going to go scatter rapid. The temperature was about 100 degrees. The wind was blowing upstream. And um, when she stepped off the boat, she just collapsed to the hot sand. Uh, everybody wondered whether it was trauma or diabetes or whatever. But in fact, it was, she was cold. We were all cold because the water was splashing on us. The wind was blowing upstream. But even though it was 100 degrees, she was suffering hypothermia. And it took us several hours to warm her up. Even though it was warm out, it, 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 it took that long uh, uh, to uh, warm her up. So remember that rule to prevent hypothermia because it's hard to warm people up. Some of the symptoms of hypothermia can, uh, can mimic stroke. The big difference between them is stroke is much more rapid of onset and it's much more focal, although some people have been confused in the backcountry by them. 
a core body uh, temperature of 35 degrees centigrade, 95 degrees Fahrenheit or less, gives the diagnosis of hypothermia. The perception of temperature is closely related to skin temperature rather than core temperature. Um, for example, shivering may begin when the core temperature is 37 degrees or 98.6. When the body gets cold and you start to develop hypothermia, um, heart function is compromised, and this leads to decreased cardiac output and fatal arrhythmias. The body must expend energy in order to shiver and to vasoconstrict peripherally. Ultimately, the depletion of energy in our body stores uh, leads to a loss of temperature homeostasis and vasodilation. When this occurs, blood rushes back to the skin and the individual is going to feel warm. This leads to a very odd phenomenon that is known as the paradoxical undressing of people who are cold, uh, whereby hypothermic individuals will take off their clothes despite the fact that they're cold. It's uh, the paradoxical undressing, uh, you know, obviously it's going to make the problem much worse to drop the temp core temperature even more as blood returns to the cold extremities and is subsequently circulated back to the core, and then this, the process just starts all over again. There is another concept that, that we like to talk about, that it's the aftertrop, and that refers to a decrease in core temperature as the extremities are rewarmed. As the periphery vasodilates during the rewarming process, blood volume increases to these areas. Cooled blood then returns to the core, decreasing overall body temperature. In cases of severe hypothermia, cardiac rest may result from a small, even a 5-degree uh, decrease in Celsius temperature uh, because of the drop in the core temperature. So when you want to measure temperature, there's a number of ways to do it, of course. You can use the ones that just measure the temperature of the skin or the ones you put in your mouth or armpit. There's a lot of ways to measure, but really a, a, a rectal or esophageal uh, temperature is ideal for diagnosing hypothermia, as temperature measurement would be grossly inaccurate using peripheral methods. So when you go in the backcountry, you want to take a rectal thermometer, and you want to take a hypothermia thermometer. Because most commercial thermometers can only register temperatures down to about 34.5 or 94 degrees, as sort of give or take. And since most people faced with hypothermia in the wilderness do not have thermometers, this becomes an important means of diagnosing hypothermia. Individuals must therefore rely on clinical symptoms to make the diagnosis. So you want to take a good thermometer with you that will measure uh, uh, core temperatures and hypothermia. When we, that lady I told you about just a minute ago got off the boat, we suspected that it was hypothermia. Nobody had a, had a thermometer to measure it except the boat guide. And in their first aid kit, they had a hypothermia a thermometer. Air core temperature is about 94 degrees centigrade. Well, anyway, when you start to classify hypothermia, there are a number of guidelines to grade the severity of hypothermia. Most of these use temperature as a means of classifications. And so the, measuring the temperature is going to have ramifications on um, how you treat people in the backcountry. Mild, they go mild, moderate, and severe. Mild hypothermia is defined when the core temperature gets down between 32 and 35 degrees centigrade. That's roughly about 89.6 to 95 degrees Fahrenheit. The cold temperature defense mechanisms are still working when a body is at that temperature and will cause the patient uh, to start to turn blue and create sort of a sensation of cold. The victim may start to shiver uncontrollably. The mental status becomes impaired with varying degrees of confusion and disorientation, and this means that people get lost and disorient the backcountry. Urinary frequency is 
common due to increased renal perfusion caused by the elevated cardiac output and peripheral vasoconstriction, which increases blood flow to the kidney, so people will generally urinate more. The victim uh, may have an elevation in their vital signs, including they'll be like tachypnic, tachycardic, and they can actually develop hyper, hyper, hypertension. When you start getting colder, you develop moderate hypothermia, and that's defined on the centigrade scale between 28 and 32, which is about 82 to 89 degrees on the Fahrenheit scale. The, the, blood, the blood pressure at that time, the heart rate and respirate, will then actually start to decrease. And it's kind of interesting because it, 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 as you get colder, physiologic changes occur this way. The victims are more confused, the pupils will start to dilate, and their muscles will start to become rigid and tight. And, and, and people in this case, they can't move their hands, they can't move their arms. Thermal regulation is incredibly less effective, and shivering uh, uh, and uh, therefore rewarming is going to be required. Shivering ceases at, at, the, at this area, and uh, at a temperature usually about 30 degrees uh, centigrade, about 86 degrees uh, uh, Fahrenheit. And that's when you start to get the cardiac arrhythmias, uh, unless warming, uh, rewarming is done real quickly. The victim will eventually cool to an ambient temperature, and then they'll just die. So moderate hypothermia is where you really need to start doing your rescue. You need to prevent people becoming even mild hypothermic if you can. But if their temperature gets down between 28 and 32, uh, you really need to work quickly and, and resuscitate these people. Severe hypothermia is defined as temperatures between 24 and 28 degrees centigrade. This is really cold, and that's between 75 and about 82 degrees uh, on the Fahrenheit scale. At this temperature, the victim goes into a coma. Their pupils will dilate, and their muscles really, at this point, will become quite rigid. Their blood pressure, if you can feel it, is barely detectable, and their pulse may be 10 to 20 beats per minute. Life-threatening arrhythmias, and that's the real problem with cold people, is, is the arrhythmias, and they get ventricular fibrillation, are easily induced at these uh, temperatures with, with any motion at all. So when somebody is, is frozen and cold, you want to be very careful how you move them. The correction of such arrhythmias is nearly impossible without core uh, rewarming. Profound hypothermia is when the temperature falls below 24 degrees centigrade. That's about 75 degrees, and there is little chance of survival at that point at, at all. One would think that the way to treat hypothermia was to put heat into the body. That is not the initial treatment at all. The initial treatment for hypothermia is to keep heat from leaving the body. The body generally makes enough heat. Uh, if you're eating adequately and you're healthy, you just need to stop heat from leaving, leaving the body. And that's what you have to do. If the hypothermia gets so pr profound and the body cannot produce enough heat for whatever reason, then you do what's active, you say what's actively rewarming, and then you can actually put objects that are hot onto the body to put it in. But the most important consideration in treating hypothermia in the field is preventing further heat loss out of the body. To accomplish this, you have to remove the victim, well, from whatever situation they happen to be in that caused uh, he or she to become hypothermic to begin with. You can do things like transport them to a shelter, remove wet clothing, provide insulating barriers around the patient, keep them out of the wind. That is convection, conduction, and radiation. That's how we get heat out of the body. So if you want to limit um, people's heat loss, you have to stop radiation, stop conduction, and stop uh, convection from, from the wind. Uh, to prevent conductive heat loss uh, with the use of insulating materials like clothes, blankets, sleeping bags, sleeping pads. Evaporative heat loss is addressed through the application of a vapor barrier, such as a bubble wrap or a tarp. 
Anything that can be done to help rewarm the victim will be helpful, such as sitting by a fire and carbohydrate rich foods or beverages. Importantly, avoid alcoholic beverages, which may actually exacerbate hypothermia by causing peripheral vasodilation. Uh, we had a story on the Middle Fork of the Salmon River uh, several uh, years ago where we were on there uh, and when a, just a flash storm hit us and it began to sleet on us. We were uh, in a hot spring alongside the river, which was a terrible place to be. We were warm, but the minute we got out, we were wet and then we were vasodilated. Some of the people in the group began to drink, which you know vasodilated even far, further. Um, the people were so cold uh, that um, five of them really began to suffer severe hypothermia. We didn't take their temperature, but we pulled over quickly and built a big fire along the bank, got up under the trees to get out of the rain and the sleet that was hitting us, set up our tents. And I was told to help a, a, a lady who was on my boat. Her name was Christy, uh, and she was uh, unbelievably cold. I took her into the tent and... Uh, uh, I told her, I said, Christy, get out of your wet clothes. Now she's in a tent. She's out of the rain and the sleet. And uh, when I went back out to up the tent, I went outside. And I was really cold. But she was very confused. She could hear her crying. And when I went back in, she was uh, had her hands on her face and was saying, uh, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. And I actually had a river back open. So I took one of the other ladies in the group, went in, and I said that you're going to have to uh, get in a sleeping bag with her and let the heat from your body get into the heat of her body. Then we wrapped them up. And then what we did was made just a lot of hot chocolate for people because that has sugar in it and it was warm. And we just started feeding people uh, hot chocolate. So that is uh, a, a very uh, important way. You've got to, first of all, get them out of the, the issue that's getting them cold. And then you've got to try to get heat into them. Um, so uh, handle the patient very carefully when they're cold uh, by the mere fact that excessive physical movement may precipitate fatal arrhythmias. I mean, these are the people that are really cold uh, that that can happen to. In a rescue situation, you always got to remember that no one is dead till the warm and dead. This is absolutely uh, correct. Uh, one year I went in to play a game of squash with some friends early one winter morning, and when we went in the front door, there was a man sitting by the front door who had obviously been out all night. We were probably the first ones there, um, and he was frozen. I don't know whether he's dead or alive, and I ran in and uh, got a blanket, and as I did so, I called 911. The fire station was uh, nearby, uh, like uh, half a block away, and they were there within within like two minutes, and uh, they were very, very careful when they picked him up. He turned out he was alive, but he didn't look alive, but I'll never forget that. I found out later that he, you know, had a lot of psychological problems, and he was known to the fire department, but he lived and uh, went on, but you have to be very careful when you manage them. um, uh, vital signs in these people, like the guy that we found in front of the squash uh, place, was can be really abnormal in hypothermic patients. And uh, you have to check them frequently. And people who are suffering from severe hypothermia may be severely comatose, although they're alive, like the man that I just told you. Uh, hypothermia decreases the base of metabolic rate and the oxygen demands. So you can actually have these people who appear to be dead that are alive. For the treatment of mild hypothermia, you really need to remove the victim from the elements because any further heat loss could create all sorts of problems for them. If they're wet, you've got to put them in dry clothes, get them out of the wind. You've got to pay, pay a particular attention to their head and um, where there's a lot of heat is lost. And one of the interesting things that I always get asked about this is, do you in fact lose 
more uh, heat from your head, uh, and that's where you should cover. Well, there's a, there's a lot of misunderstanding about that. The, the truth is you can lose heat from all over your body, but most people are dressed. That is, they have coats, they have pants, shoes, socks, gloves, and maybe a small hat on their head, but we leave our head exposed. So the answer is we do lose, do lose most of the heat from our head because the head is, is exposed. If you covered your head up and walked around with very little on your body, most of your heat would be lost from the body. You have to kind of think the answer to that one. So, But it is true that there's a lot of blood in the neck and the head and in the armpits and the groin. So those are areas that you want to be uh, particularly careful of uh, and make sure that the, you're protecting those areas because there is more blood supply there. When you get to people with moderate hypothermia, the individual really at this point has exhausted their capacity to achieve warming by shivering. And so you have to start actively warming people at this point. You should attempt rewarming in the field with such items as hot water bottles or blankets uh, that are heated. Um, the areas, as we said, of the uh, human body with the highest potential for conductive heat losses are the axilla chest and the back, and you want to cover those. Severe hypothermia treatment is a true medical emergency and requires very aggressive treatment. If you're doing it in the field, active rewarming is essential. These victims uh, have no ability to reheat themselves at this stage. They cannot produce uh, anything that will warm them. So it's important to consider the victims suffering in this condition may exhibit altered mental status if they're still conscious. And you have to be really careful in handling, as we said, because you can get it as a cardiac uh, irritability at this point, even a ventricular fibrillation. So move them gently. This becomes extremely important in determining when CPR needs to be initiated because really victims with severe hypothermia may have faint pulses and like this severe bradycardia and appear to be dead. So it's important to assess vital signs over a minimum of 60 seconds before you start CPR. So if the, the patient has vital signs, even if very slow uh, uh, heart rhythm, CPR should not be performed at all. After determining that the patient has no vital signs, CPR, including breathing, uh, should be initiated. Evacuation guidelines indicate that all victims with moderate and severe hypothermia must be evacuated from the wilderness. They have lost the capacity to rewarm themselves, and it's extremely difficult to actively rewarm these victims in a wilderness setting. You may have no choice but to keep them there, but it's something that, that you really should keep in the back of your minds to get them out. Victims who have mild hypothermia might need evacuation, or they may, they, they may not, depending upon the ability to, to warn themselves, and, they, and uh, that they don't you know, get sequelae from that episode. When transporting the uh, hypothermic patient, be careful with them, as we said. Uh, and, but the single most aspect of hypothermia treatment is adequate prevention through preparation, knowing the weather patterns, knowing where you're going, having adequate uh, thought before you go out in the cold. Hypothermia really is what they say, the killer of the unprepared. But even experienced, prepared outdoor people have succumbed to this ailment. And it's just because you get in situations that you, where you wouldn't expect to find yourself. You should be aware of all the weather patterns, being, uh, bringing all the appropriate gear that you can, and always have a contingency plan if something goes bad. Well, this ends the uh, podcast on hypothermia. Again, thank you for listening. <laughs>